Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the wooing of Senator Joe Manchin by the so-called nonpartisan group No Labels to run as a third-party candidate for president, with Manchin delivering a keynote address tonight at a No Labels event in New Hampshire, where he might make an announcement. The group is led by Senator Joe Lieberman and Nancy Jacobson, a prolific fundraiser who, along with her husband Mark Penn, are big boosters for Israel and Netanyahu, who clearly wants Trump back in the White House. This has led to speculation that all the dark money No Labels is raising from Republican billionaires now going to buy ballot access in Arizona and other swing states will be deployed to split the vote for Biden and make Trump the next president. Joining us is Dennis Aftergut, a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently serves as counsel to lawyers defending American democracy, and we will discuss his article at the Bulwark, No Labels, No Ideas, Scheming to Run a Third-Party Presidential Candidate, the group has released a banal, bogus platform. Then we look into Russia's suspension of the UN-brokered Black Sea grain deal that allows it and Ukraine to export grains and fertilizer to the global market. Joining us to assess the impact on global food and commodity prices is Chris Barrett, Professor of Applied Economics and Management and an International Professor of Agriculture at the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management, as well as a Professor in the Department of Economics and Global Development at Cornell University. He's the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Food Policy, edits the book series Agriculture, Economics and Food Policy, and co-edits the Elsphere Handbook of Agricultural Economics. Then finally, with Putin's signature bridge linking Russia to Crimea blown up for a second time, we'll investigate the underground Tatar resistance movement, the Atesh Fire guerrillas, and the history of the repression of these Turkic-speaking indigenous people in Crimea, who Stalin deported and the Russian occupier now targets for arrest with 49 Tata activists disappeared so far. Joining us is Rachel Smoltz, who is currently studying for her master's degree at the University of Alberta, specializing in 20th and 21st century Soviet Russian history, with a focus on the formation of national identity in the Crimean Peninsula after Nikita Khrushchev transferred the Crimean Peninsula to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1954. And joining us now is Dennis Aftergat, who's a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently serves as counsel to lawyers defending American democracy, and he has an article at the Bulwark, No Labels, No Ideas, Scheming to Run a Third-Party Presidential Candidate, The Group Has Released a Banal, Bogus Platform. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dennis Aftergat. Always a pleasure to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Dennis. And uh, Joe Manchin is giving a keynote address tonight in New Hampshire at San Anselm College in Manchester. It looks as though he's being invited to be a third-party candidate in a split ticket that this group No Labels are planning to run. And it looks as if this could be an incredibly serious move that would be incredibly detrimental to Biden, since it will split, largely split the Democratic vote, not the Republican vote. So 
this no labels movement is pretty opaque. They won't tell you where their funding comes from. In fact, Nancy Jacobson, their co-founder, along with former Senator Lieberman, she said on recently on NBC in Denver, asked about who are your donors, and she said she wouldn't tell them because quote because it opens people up to incredible scrutiny. Well, apparently, most of the donors are wealthy <laughs> Republicans. So <laughs> this is not looking good. Well, how do you see it? I mean, you know, your article more or less points out what frauds they are because they they don't stand for anything. So why the hell are they doing this? That was one quote Nancy Jacobson gave about dark money, Ian. But an even better one is she said, she she defended it saying, what's best for democracy is confidentiality. What's best for democracy is confidentiality. Well, there she parts company with a pretty smart guy, former Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. I, I thought we believed in transparency and yes, and scrutiny um, of donors, but not no labels, apparently. Well, Nancy Jacobson is a prolific fundraiser, and her husband is Mark Penn, a real Washington insider who worked for Clinton, but has worked mostly for Republicans. He's a pollster. Together, they've raised an awful amount of, a lot of money for APAC, the American-Israel Political Action Committee. So there's some fears and some criticism from David Sirotis and other on the left that this whole campaign could be a stalking horse for Israel. That, in other words... They're doing Netanyahu's bidding, and we know that Netanyahu does not want Joe Biden re-elected and would much prefer Donald Trump. So would uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi dictator. Uh, well, that would align with favoring Trump over Biden, which is what no labels own polling and what 538.com says would be the result that a third party candidate would drain way more votes from Biden than from Trump. And if you want to think about the danger in no labels is already on the ballot. They don't have a candidate yet, but they've got a placeholder in Arizona and in Arizona, in Wisconsin, and in Georgia, Biden won by a total of 41,000 votes. So that is just minuscule. And if you drain more votes from Biden and from Trump in those three, three states, if they get on the ballot in the other two, and their goal is to raise $70 million to do that, um, then right there, you have a tie in the electoral college. And ties in the electoral college go to the House for resolution. And the House, even when Democrats were in control, had more delegations than, uh, the Republicans had more delegations 
than Democrats. And under the uh, Electoral Count Act, that's the way that uh, one votes state by state. So Trump wins the election right there. But that's only a tiny fraction of it that, I, that I'm, I'm pointing to. This is a serious, serious danger. And, um, you know, you mentioned Mark Penn, Nancy Jacobson's husband. He visited the, the Trump White House. He is a regular Trump defender as a Fox News contributor. And guess what, Ian? Of that money, that dark money that they raise, about $500,000 has gone to the Harris X, one of the polling groups. Guess who the chairman of the larger company that Harris X is a part of? The chairman of the board, Mark Penn. Hmm. So the money stays all in the family. Well, but Nancy, as I mentioned, Nancy Jacobs is a prolific fundraiser, largely for the Democrats and also for APAC as well. And she is trying to raise $70 million, according to the New York Times, to get on the ballots. And you recall the only time there was a viable third candidate who got 19% of the vote was Ross Perot. And he had a lot of money and he was able to get on the ballots. It's not inexpensive to get on ballots. You've got to have some real juice behind you. So if they get on all these ballots, particularly in these key swing states... They can do a lot of mischief. Absolutely. Um, the other in history, going back further than Ross Perot, uh, in 1912, Teddy Roosevelt ran on the Bull Moose Party ticket. He split the votes of the Republican Party. He was a Republican, a progressive Republican, and that threw the election to Woodrow Wilson. So and and but if you don't even go back that far, you look at Florida, where um, Ralph Nader got ninety thousand votes, ninety-seven thousand. Well, okay, you know, you know, and 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 and, the, and Gore lost by five hundred and thirty-seven votes. All right, so uh, you're already four steps ahead of me as usual, and 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 Florida as we all know, made George Bush president of the United States, won us the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And let me tell you, that won't look like nothing if Donald Trump is elected. So this group, No Labels, again, Joe Lieberman, Nancy Jacobson, Mark Penn, they're all saying that they won't be spoilers yet they're going to spend $70 million to get on these ballots. And if somehow the polling, and I don't know what polling they're talking about, suggests that their ticket would you know, hurt Biden more than Trump or the other way around, although it's highly unlikely, then they'd pull out. None of that sounds particularly convincing to me. Are you assured by that, uh, Dennis? Uh, absolutely not. This is a very sophisticated group. And they've figured out what to say to calm people's nerves. Um, their platform is meant uh, that they just issued is meant to 
soothe people to thinking that they're okay. But you know, oh, we'll just uh, back off. There are plenty of states you can't get off the ballot once you're on. You absolutely cannot get off. And there are other states you can get off, but it's very, very hard. There is a freight train that is churning down the tracks and it is impossible to stop once it gets momentum. So what's then the likelihood of this ticket having, if Joe Manchin decides, and he's he's going to have a problem getting reelected because Jim Justice is running against him for the Senate, for his Senate seat. Uh, so, and you've also got Kirsten Sinema out there, but she's another so-called Democrat, although that's very debatable. Who would the, who would the, the other guy on the ticket or the other girl on the ticket, if assuming that, the, I mean, they are saying that they're going to have a split ticket, a Democrat and a Republican. Any idea of who the Republican might be, assuming Joe Manchin throws his hat in the ring, which he might well do this evening in uh, New Hampshire? Uh, Yes. Um, uh, They haven't, that, you know, there's a lot of uh, publicity about their courting Manchin. Manchin was one of the original honorary co-founders or co-chairs um, and he is up there, uh, as you said, uh, tonight as a headliner and making a lot of noise and being on TV. Um, Kirsten Cinema, by the way, is now an independent. Uh, so, uh, but that would certainly be a fit. Uh, but the other person that's getting a lot of attention and is uh, prominent is John Huntsman, who was the Republican governor in Utah, if memory serves. They're not talking much about that. Uh, Manchin's much in the news about being courted to be the lead. Sure. But let's just in the last few minutes, because I want to talk about your piece at The Bulwark. No labels, no idea. Scheming to run a third-party presidential candidate, the group has released a banal, bogus platform. And it's just absolutely vapid, full of all kinds of mom and apple pie banalities. For example, on voting rights, every legal voter should have the right to vote. Every legal voter should have the right to vote and the ability to vote, and every legal vote should be counted, and every counted vote should be verified. Well, when you use legal vote, you're falling right into the MAGA lie. But that aside, national security, a world led by America is safer than a world led by Russia and China would be. Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) then civil rights every american deserves respect and freedom from discrimination okay and then even with transgender they say they you should consider this controversial issue from the position of dignity respect and common sense well good luck calming down the maga people with that one and then there's another point with that I think we already have a president who does that. Just <laughs> last week, he announced he he welcomed from the White House, from his home state of Delaware, with pride, the first transgendered state assembly representative in the country. So we already got it. Right. 
But I agree with you. Uh, that doesn't solve the problem, and that's the problem with everything that they propose. But the worst one of all, or the most hypocritical one of all, is on poverty and schooling, no label says that no child in America should go to bed or go to school hungry. Every child in America should have the right to a high-quality education. Well, guess what? Joe Biden put through the child tax credit that raised up so many kids in this country and poor families. It was a monthly child tax credit of $300 per child under the age of six and $250 for each child between the ages of six and 17. And guess who killed that? The same guy that they're thinking of running as, they, as they're on their presidential ticket who basically took away benefits from children so that now there are a lot of kids now in this country going to school, going to bed and going to school hungry. Uh, can I add another piece of hypocrisy to pile onto yours? Go ahead, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, they take this uh, this other really courageous position and they say on, on the national uh, deficit, the country should stop spending so much more money than it takes in. Wow. And then you can read the entire 63 pages, Ian. You will not find one suggestion for cutting spending. You will find on various items suggestions for increasing spending. So um, I, I guess they're with Ralph Waldo Emerson when he said, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Well, we don't know whether this vapid thing that pretends to be a party's manifesto is just window decoration for a more cynical move to help elect Trump. Uh, on behalf of Netanyahu and other right-wingers, if if the money is all dark money and nobody knows who's funding this group, and the suspicion is that they're mostly Republicans, and given Nancy Jacobson's background uh, with APEC... Well, there's uh, Ian, Ian, there's more on that. You know, um, one of their, a few of their uh, funders have been unmasked, and one of them is Harlan Crow. Ever heard of him? He's oh, the, the Nazi lover. Right. Yeah. Uh, for uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, who took him on lavish vacations. And um, another one is a billionaire who gave, I don't know, somewhere north of $100,000 to the Trump Victory Fund. His name is John Katsimidis. He's the um, owner of the uh, uh, a, a grocery chain whose name escapes me at the moment. So we we do know that there are a lot of there are at least a number of very, very wealthy Republican donors who are also backing uh, no labels. Well, we have to keep an eye on this, uh, obviously, and have to smoke them out because they can't just say, oh, we can't tell you who our donors are because it might make them uncomfortable. Pity the billionaire, right? Uh, poor dears. <laughs> well, Ian, Ian uh, on that count... Um, Kudos to you, because, as Brandeis said, sunlight is the best disinfectant, and the best tool that we have is to educate, educate, educate people 
about who these people really are. A vote for no labels is a vote for Trump. Well, Dennis Aftergat, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Dennis Aftergat, who's a former federal prosecutor and city and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently serves as counsel to lawyers defending American democracy, and he has an article at The Bulwark, No Labels, No Ideas, Scheming to Run a Third-Party Presidential Candidate, The Group Has Released a Banal, Bogus Platform. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Russia's suspension of the UN-brokered Black Sea grain deal that allows it and Ukraine to export grains and fertilizers to the global market. and prunes slept on the ground in the light of your moon on the edge of your city you've seen us and then we come with the dust and we go with the wind green pastures of plenty from dry desert ground from that grass welcome back i'm ian masters and this is background briefing available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is chris barrett who's a professor of applied economics and management and an international professor of agriculture at the charles h dyson school of applied economics and management as well as a professor in the department of economics and global development at cornell university He's the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Food Policy, edits the book series Agriculture and Economics and Food Policy, and co-edits the Elsevier Handbook of Agricultural Economics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chris Barrett. Thanks very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. And today, uh, Moscow halted the UN-brokered grain deal, where both Russia and Ukraine are able to export grain through the Black Sea, Turkey, of course, is an important player in this agreement. And in announcing that they were no longer going to abide by this agreement, the Russians basically have said, unfortunately, the parts of these Black Sea agreements concerning Russia have not been implemented so far. So its effect is terminated. Uh, they also went on to say that this had no link to the attack on the Kursk Bridge. But the UN Secretary General said that this will worsen food security and harm millions. So what's your expectation, Chris, in terms of the global food insecurity, what, that this curtailment of the export agreement will mean? Well, this isn't good news, but it's also not horrific news. So it's important to put this in context. Ukraine is a major exporter of multiple key agricultural commodities, in particular wheat, corn or maize, barley, sunflower, and its various oil products. And so those countries that rely on importing from Ukraine now are getting their supplies cut, and they have to go find alternative suppliers on short notice. 
that will inevitably drive prices up for those specific buyers and the knock-on effect in markets mean prices will go up globally. That's bad for especially poor food importing countries that already struggle to afford food imports to provide adequate diets for their, their families. Um, so that's that's the bad news. We know what direction prices will go from this. And indeed, the short run market response was higher prices for maize and corn and soy, which is a main substitute for sunflower as an oilseed. But it's not horrific news because the circumstances are very different than they were when Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 22. And you might recall food prices, especially for those products, just leapt. We saw a big upward spike. So circumstances are different in a couple of ways. First is back in February 2022, food prices had already been increasing quite rapidly around the world for more than a year largely due to effects of of uh, of government attempts to purchase more food across the world during covid due to various supply chain problems so this supply shock on top of what were already rapidly rising prices just compounded matters today by contrast prices of, for example, wheat, the probably biggest commodity impacted by this, have fallen about 20, 25%, somewhere in that range, over the, the last year and a half, roughly, since, since the invasion. So, so this will reverse that fall, probably, if, if the deal doesn't get resurrected reasonably quickly. But it's, it's not it's not building on upward momentum in prices. So food prices will still be cheaper than they were a year or a year and a half ago. So that really limits the adverse effect of this on poor and hungry people around the world. So that's the first big difference. The second big difference is this is much less of a surprise. Russia has threatened to back out of the agreement on on multiple occasions since this was first brokered by the UN in Turkey roughly a year ago. And the markets and traders have largely priced the prospect of Russia backing out of the agreement into their contracting. People have anticipated this. There are now pretty well-functioning alternate supply routes for Ukrainian agricultural exports, they're more expensive. So you're gonna to have to evacuate Ukrainian wheat through the land borders Ukraine has and out into Danube River ports that come out through Europe rather than through the Black Sea. That just adds transport costs, some of which will go into the price of grain that buyers pay around the world, some of which will come out of the profits for Ukrainian farmers and, and grain traders. But with those supply chains in place and given people have been at least partly expecting Russia to ultimately back out of this, people aren't caught unawares the same way they were. So they've made contingency plans. And that's the second big difference. And the third big difference is last year's price spike and the, the run up in prices that have preceded it led to a big producer response around the world. 2022 was the all-time record grain harvest globally. 
And while this year it will be down a little bit relative to last year's record harvest, we're still seeing really robust wheat harvests in Europe and in Canada that can easily pick up some of the slack for whatever shortfall will arise from fewer exports from Ukraine. So for both, for all three of those reasons, we will see a little bit of a price increase globally, I'm sure, and that will have adverse knock-on effects on global hunger. But those effects are going to be relatively modest, certainly much more modest than they were back in spring 2022. The main losers from this are frankly going to be Ukrainian farmers and grain exporters because they're going to either be unable to sell some of their product or it will take longer to sell, or they're going to have to pay higher transport margins to evacuate it. Right. And the wheat harvest begins in this month and, uh, and in August. So they will have even more wheat on their hands. And of course, they are exporting now, as you pointed out, through Europe, but even European farmers are complaining about that. So is there a chance that the Ukrainians could continue exporting via the Black Sea, which Zelensky has said that they plan to do, along with Turkey, it wouldn't take much for Russia to mine uh, the shipping lanes. So is that a practical uh, possibility that they'll just go ahead and ignore the Russian uh, end of its deal uh, and just continue as if, you know, nothing happened? Um, I... I'm in no position to speculate on on whether Ukraine wants to gamble that Russia won't do horrible things. Uh, And given its track record, I'm not sure that's necessarily a great bet. That said, um, running the risk of mining the Black Sea, keep in mind, it's much easier to install mines than it is to retrieve mines. And that would cause lasting effects in the Black Sea by significantly driving up the cost of insurance. Indeed, many, many freight forwarders would have a hard time getting insurance if they're trying to evacuate vessels through uh, mine-ridden seas. At a minimum, that would drive up prices and keep them higher for a longer period by increasing transport costs through the Black Sea. So my my instinct is that that's probably not a great strategy. Um, that's not to say that they won't try it. I'm not privy to those deliberations. Well, of course, Ukraine has often been referred to as the breadbasket of Europe. It supplies 10% of the world's wheat exports, 20% of its corn exports, and 40% of the global sunflower oil supply. And insurance was the actual the issue that the Russians were complaining about because the deal was that Ukraine could export its grain and so could Russia. But Russia couldn't get insurance because of the sanctions and the negotiations clearly fell apart. So that's essentially why they're pulling out. So given that there's a new harvest coming in of wheat in particular, do you think that Russia's was went along with the deal, even though they feel they got shafted because of their public image and wanting to woo the the people in the global south, most of whom actually support Russia and not Ukraine in this war. Do you think there was a public relations uh, aspect to the Russia's decision in the first place? I think there's a public relations aspect to the decision in the first place and a realpolitik dimension to the current decision. Um, I mean, the 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 bite from financial sanctions, whether it's trade credits or insurance, 
is the stated reason for this, but I think it's quite possible that part of what Russia is after also is to increase various global southern countries' dependency on Russian exports. That they, because the natural substitute, Russia is the largest wheat exporter that's a natural substitute for Ukrainian exports. So those who are not going to be able to get delivery of Ukrainian wheat and to a lesser extent uh, corn or maize are going to turn to Russia. And that gives Russia a little bit more negotiating leverage over various Middle Eastern and North African countries in particular. Those are the those are the main importers that are exposed to Ukraine and therefore vulnerable to uh, to, to to Russian pressure. I think that that is, you know, that can cut both ways um, in that increased reliance on on Russia may not be a long term strategy for many of those countries. I think you will see a lot of Canadians rather happy at this turn of events because it's likely to build significant demand for Canadian wheat exports. Canada is less likely to play geopolitical games, not especially likely to invade any of its neighbors, uh, and offers very high quality wheat. So um, whether Russia is actually able to capture significantly expanded market share and use that as geopolitical leverage is an open question. I am not convinced that uh, that that it, this is really a matter of the financial bite of sanctions and Russia not getting a fair enough deal, however. But from what I'm reading in terms of the coverage of this, the Russians have not been able to export their grain through the Black Sea. And well, that was the original deal with, with both Russia and Ukraine could export. But Russia saying, no, we ne the West never came through and they wanted sanctions lifted on insurance, etc. So are the Russians exporting through the Black Sea? My understanding is they are exporting some through the Black Sea. But keep in mind, Russia exports through lots of places other than the Black Sea. And they export considerably more wheat than Ukraine does. So uh, whatever impediments they are really facing in exporting through the Black Sea are more readily addressed in their case than in Ukraine's case. They have far more options. They've got far more seaports than Ukraine has. So do you think there'll be much of a public relations effect detrimental to Russia? I mean, they've got the BRICS conference coming up in South Africa in August, uh, and there's some question of whether Putin will go because he could be arrested under the International Criminal Court's warrant, although he says he's going to go. And Cyril Ramaphosa led a, the South African president led a delegation a month ago to Russia discussing grain exports, etc., among other things. And uh, it didn't really work out very well for anybody. So are they going to take a public relations hit? I don't think they're going to take a very big public relations hit, but let's face it, Russia is not exactly the darling of most of the world right now. There are a number of countries that are aligned with Russia primarily because they do rely upon Russian exports of any variety of products, not just agricultural products, but also fertilizers and hydrocarbons, natural gas and oil, um, or they are reliant upon Russia for military equipment. 
So the the marginal effect of this on on Russia's standing in the global community will be relatively modest. I think it it won't be positive, but I don't think it's going to be particularly pronounced either. So just in the in the last couple of minutes, then we talked about the effect on uh, Russia. What kind of an effect is is this going to have on Ukraine if indeed they try to go ahead? Uh, as they say, with Turkey and just ignore the Russians and and ship the stuff out and the Russians start mining the sea lanes and they're stuck again. So who's got the best prognosis, in other words? Because obviously the deal, had it been implemented in the way that both sides wanted, would have been better for both sides. But is there a way that the Ukrainians can get around it? Um, probably not. As I suggested earlier, I think Ukraine stands to be the big loser if Russia does continue to hold fast and not renew the agreement. Um, that will be especially true if Ukraine tries to export through the Black Sea, regardless of the deal being off and Russia responds by mining the sea lanes, because that will create a durable effect. Once once an agreement goes into effect later on, if one goes into effect later on, the mines would still be there, and that will continue to create problems and costs for Ukraine. So whether it is because they are driving up their transport costs to try to maneuver through seas that might now have mines installed in, in the passageways, or they're driving up their transport costs by going over land to export through European river ports, Ukraine's just going to face elevated cost to export and slower throughput volume. So they're going to wind up having a significant reduction in their agricultural exports, which will hurt them at a time they're, they're mounting a very expensive war. Ukraine is going to suffer more from this than either Russia or the global south. And frankly, I think that's a big reason why Russia backed out of the agreement. So just in closing, the, since the agreement happened, 30 million metric tons of, of grain, mostly, have been unlocked. But one quarter of that has gone to China, and then half has gone to the, you know, the global south and the rest of the world. So China's obviously a big market. Could China weigh in on the Russians? They've certainly got some leverage. Um, potentially. Historically, they don't do that much. And China has lots of other markets that it can access. Again, Canadian wheat production and exports are expected to increase significantly this year. And Canada sends a lot of wheat to China already. So it, China may find that it's not worth trying to lean on Russia and use political capital for that when there are a number of other prospective suppliers of wheat available to satisfy its growing demand. Well, Chris Barrett, I thank you very much for joining us here today. All right. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Chris Barrett, who's a professor of applied economics and management and an international professor of agriculture at the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management, as well as a professor in the Department of Economics and Global Development at Cornell University. He's the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Food Policy, edits the book series Agricultural Economics and Food Policy, and co-edits the Elsevier Handbook of Agricultural Economics. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with Putin's signature bridge linking Russia to Crimea blown up for a second time. We'll investigate the underground Tatar resistance group, the Atesh guerrillas, and the history of 
Soviet and Russian repression of the Tatars. Welcome back, Amy and Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rachel Smiles, who is currently studying for her Master's degree at the University of Alberta, specialising in 20th and 21st century Soviet-Russian history, with a focus on the formation of national identity in the Crimean Peninsula, after Nikita Khrushchev transferred the Crimean Peninsula to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1954. Welcome to Background Briefing. Rachel Smiles. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Rachel. And it looks as if Ukrainian operatives have blown up the Kirsch Bridge for a second time. And it seems that they've they've used these unmanned surface vehicles, these waterborne drones, uh, USVs, to blow it up. They didn't blow up the rail side. They blew up the automobile and truck side, but not the rail side, where most of the heavy military equipment is shipped. But uh, And, of course, they blew the bridge up back in October of uh, 2022. It was attributed to a truck bomb, but actually, from my context in Ukraine, say it was actually another unmanned surface vessel, the USV, that did it. So what's your sense, then, of how that's playing inside the Crimean Peninsula itself, particularly with the Tatars. Well, what's really interesting to me is that Ukraine has never claimed that they blew up in blew up the bridge in 2022 or this last time, but everybody's attributing to them. And Zelensky even went on and said, um, when he took about the victories in 2022, he said it was a victory. I, I think it shows in the Crimean Peninsula, how much they are for Ukraine. Um, there's not a lot of people fighting in the Crimean Peninsula against Ukrainians. And I think this is just another push forward to show how united that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been for Ukraine. It's a uniting force. So the Crimean Tatars are a minority, right? They, but they're the, the yeah. original native peoples, right? They're Turkic-speaking and, of course, in 1944, Stalin deported the entire Crimean Tatar population, mostly to Uzbekistan. So they've been obviously brutalized by Stalin and marginalized ever since. So my understanding is that there's a Crimean Tatar, what do you call it, underground movement? Yes. It's called the Atash Guerrilla Group. What do you know about Atash, which means fire in Crimean Tatar? From what I know is, while the majority is Crimean Tatars, there are 
ethnic Ukrainian and ethnic Russians in the group as well. Um, as in an interview from the Crimean Tatar leader who is not in Crimea anymore, um, he said it's a very underground group. And what's interesting is nobody from the group has ever been arrested or persecuted or kind of, it's so underground that, you know, nobody knows who's actually in it. Well, but that's not to say that the Russian occupiers have not persecuted Tatars. The no. Tatars are, Crimean Tatars represent 13% of the peninsula's population, but 85% of the political arrests and illegal searches have been targeted against them, and 49 activists are missing, with only eight, eight of their bodies being found so far. So, uh, And, of course, the jails are full of Tatar political leaders and activists. So I guess the FSB is really going after them, right? Yes. Um, since 2014, Putin has systematically targeted Crimean Tatars. Um, I've looked at, there's millions of news articles out there that talk about this specific targeting of Crimean Tatars. Um, what's interesting to me is I can draw parallels from Putin's prosecution since 2014 and what Stalin was doing before deportation. So Stalin in the 1930s and then right up until the Second World War, it's very similar, this targeting of a minority group. And what's different, though, is since the 1990s, I believe the Crimean Tatars have a new mentality. Um, they will not allow 20, what happened in 1944, the deportation, to happen again. And with this new mentality, they're willing to fight this. Um, they aren't going underground and just allowing this to happen. Um, part of the continued prosecution is because the Tatars are fighting back. They are not just sitting down and allowing this to happen. Well, the Atish guerrilla group of Crimean Tatars and also Russians and Ukrainians, they claim that they have 4,000 Russian soldiers have already enrolled in their online courses on how to survive the war by wrecking their own equipment. So what do you, I mean, this is, a, I'm getting this from an article at the, at the Guardian. So what do you know about their recruiting efforts amongst Russians and Ukrainians in Crimea? I don't know anything specifically about the recruiting efforts. From what I would guess, it would be a very much similar to a lot of the underground efforts in the Soviet Union um, and how they're kind of getting word out. I think the Crimean Peninsula itself has a different sense of nationalism than Russian nationalism or Ukrainian nationalism because you do have Ukrainians, Tatars, and Russians all together that they have developed separately from the core of Ukraine or the core of Russia. And I think they have bonded together. And I think this guerrilla group shows how they are willing to fight together to end this war. So, Rachel, back in 1944, when Stalin deported the entire Crimean Tatar population to Uzbekistan, do we know how many people were deported and how many came back? They obviously suffered a lot of casualties, right? And deaths. Yeah. Absolutely. There was, depending on what numbers you're actually looking at, um, we can look at actual Soviet documents that vastly underreported. And then we also have Crimean Tatar historians who have reported much more. Um, the official documents from the NKVD reported only 191 deaths during deportation. Um, and we're looking about two, 200,000 
Crimean Tatars that were deported within a matter of a couple days in May. But that number doesn't really account for. There was at least probably 6,400 people who died en route. Um, and Crimean Tatar historians have argued that about 7 to 8% of the population died during deportation. And then almost half the population, 46.2%, died during the first few years of exile in Uzbekistan. And do we know how many returned compared to how many were deported? Those numbers are a little bit harder. Um, people, Crimean Tatars started to return in the 1998 um, or the 1990s. Um, in the 2001 Ukrainian census, they accounted for about 10% of the population. So within a matter of 10 years, a large majority returned. Um, but we're all talking like this is generation, gen next generation of Crimean Tatars returning to their homeland. So you mentioned uh, some of the Crimean Tatar leaders. They are in uh, Kiev mostly, mm -hmm. uh, including the godfather of the Crimean Tatar rights movement, Mustafa Dzemilev. Yeah. Tell me about what's the relationship between the leadership of the Crimean Tatars in exile, particularly in Ukraine, and the Ukrainian war effort, because I'm sure they're using Tatars and other people on the ground, because a number of Russian ammunition depots and oil depots, etc., have been blown up. So it seems like the Ukrainians have effectively infiltrated Crimea, after all, they what they've had it since <laughs> since Khrushchev gave yeah. it over in 1954. Um, what's really interesting about Crimean Tatar civil rights movements is since 1922, when the Crimean Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic was created, most of the leaders have been in exile or haven't been able to be in the Crimean Peninsula. So this isn't something new that's been happening in the last two years since the invasion, um, the full-scale invasion. But what's, I think, over the course of the last couple of decades, Crimean Tatars have been able to develop a sense of nationalism in Ukraine because Ukraine allowed them to have a, so, a sense of identity. Um, in the 1990s, Crimean Tatars and the Kyiv government, they had a lot of um, disagreements and issues, but I have seen over the last two years, especially with President Zelensky, he has made a lot of steps to reconcile that relationship. Um, I've and what Crimean Tatars, they're Turkish ethnic and they're Muslim, and President Zelensky has even helped the Crimean Tatars celebrate their Muslim heritage as well, and I think that's a really big step forward. And I think the leaders are able to work from exile. So when the Crimean Tatar underground movement, the Atesh guerrillas, say that they, they're ready to fight the Russians, all they need is arms. Is it, do you have any information about how arms are getting to them, if they are getting to them, and what kind of guerrilla activities could start erupting behind the Russian lines? I mean, the Russians are obviously in the midst of a battle where they've got a lot of defensive uh, layers where the Ukrainians are sort of slowly 
wearing them down, but they're also Ukrainians are also taking casualties. So this, as this grinds on, already we've had the Kirsch Bridge shut down, at least the, uh, the, the road part of it, not the rail part of it. So what's your sense then of what mayhem could be instigated here behind the lines? I think when it comes to arms, I think everyone has to be very careful because you, if you are giving arms to a guerrilla group, um, not an official sanctioned military, I am not sure any of the Western countries would be willing to give arms, but I think there could be a transportation of um, arms and guns and ammunition, perhaps from Ukrainians down to Crimea. Over, no matter way, where this ends, I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine it's going to come to a big heat at Crimean Peninsula and where, who does the Crimean Peninsula belong to? I don't think Putin is going to allow Ukraine to take back the Crimean Peninsula without a very large fight. Um, I think there's too much symbolic representation. and But at this point, two years in, the people living in the Crimean Peninsula do not want to be a part of Russian occupation anymore. Um, if you go back, there's been many surveys over the last 20 years, and especially kind of in the early 2000s, there was a percentage, about a third, maybe 25% of the population in the Crimean Peninsula who did want to rejoin with Russia. And, but that I, I think we're really seeing those numbers dwindle at this point. Um, and it, even if we look at the annexation vote in 2014, no. Um, according to Crimean Tatar leaders, 99% of Crimean Tatars boycotted that vote. So you have a great deal of percentage growing that they don't want to be a part of Russia. Um, but I don't know how that will end. Russia is not going to give up the land peacefully. But after 2014, when the little green man came in and took the peninsula, Putin tried to, to get... Russians to settle there, didn't he? And on all these beachfront, I mean, they've already had a lot of tourists go. In fact, just today, the Russians have urged the Russian tourists on vacation in Crimea to take a land route via Mariupol to get out. So they warned them to get out. And of course, they've had the big Russian naval base as well there, which is the headquarters for the Black Sea Fleet. So what's the real situation there vis-a-vis how many Russians settled. Because I, I, the f- first thing that Putin did when he took over was to put a gangster in charge. His code name, or his, <laughs> his gangster call sign was the rabbit. G- give me a sense of whether there are a lot of Russian settlers there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Russian kind of occupying Crimea has been going on since the Russian Empire annexed Crimean Peninsula back in 1783. I've been looking at a couple censuses, and to kind of give you a timeline, in the 1785 census, it was 84% of the population was Crimean Tatars. And then by 1926, it was only 25% of the population was Crimean Tatars, where you have 42% Russians. And then after the deportation, and by the end of the 1950s, Russians accounted for more than 70% of the population of Crimean Peninsula. Um, and the last Ukrainian official Ukrainian census in 2001, 
Um, Crimean Tatars were about 12% of the population. Russians were 58 and Ukrainians were 24%. Um, so Russians kind of occupying that region is not new. Um, but my research really looks into how connect, like Russians living in the Crimean Peninsula today, are they connected with the Russian Federation or have they developed a sense of home and identity with the Crimean Peninsula separate from their homeland of Russia? Um, and we have to be careful looking at some censuses done in the Soviet Union, because of course, many people just ethnically identified as Russian or forced to ethnically identify as Russian. Um, but overall, since Russia has had control of the Crimean Peninsula, more and more ethnic Russians have been there. And it is a vacation spot. It's that um, being on the Black Sea. So you also have that type of situation there. But I don't know what that those percentages really mean if they want if they identify with Russia or they identify with the Crimean Peninsula as their home. Well, Rachel, I thank you again for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Rachel Smiles, who currently studying for a master's degree at the University of Alberta, specializing in 20th and 21st century Soviet Russian history, with a focus on the formation of national identity in the Crimean Peninsula after Nikita Khrushchev transferred the Crimean Peninsula to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1954. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. One more light goes out in